neuroscience, quantum physics, biology, plant medicine, non-dual tantric meditative practices. We will be exploring these concepts with experts to provide insights. Get ready to melt reality with us. In this episode, we have four great segments for you. First, I'll review and summarize a recently published scientific study related to the science of consciousness in our Science Updates segment. Second, our colleague Sana Tour, a student at Fordham University, will share an actual transcendent experience reported by one of her student colleagues. Jody and I will then interview Maxie Cohen, a filmmaker, activist, and multimedia alchemist. And finally, Jody will walk us through meditation practices to play with and melt perception, identity, and the ego. This week, I'll be summarizing a study entitled Default Mode Network Modulation by Psychedelics, a Systematic Review. Before going into the study itself, I'm going to give a little background that you will need to understand the study. Psychedelics, as most of you probably know, is a term to describe a unique class of natural and synthetic compounds that produce vivid hallucinations and profound psychological and mystical experiences. These substances have been shown to alter the set of brain circuits called the default mode network. The default mode network is a group of interconnected brain regions that are active when the brain is at rest. The default mode network has been linked to self-referencing, mind-wandering, and autobiographical memories. I'm sure these are phenomena that are familiar to all of you. The default mode network is important because it's connected to mental activities like daydreaming, thinking about yourself, and remembering things from your past. Think of it as that tape inside your head. Over the years, scientists have done a lot of research to see how psychedelics affect the default mode network, but there is still a great deal about it that is unknown. So in the study, scientists looked at all the research that has been done so far on three popular psychedelic drugs, LSD, psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and ayahuasca, a drink made from uh, a variety of plants that many of you are familiar with and that we talk about on this show. This type of study is called a systematic review. So the scientists in the study found that all three psychedelic drugs disrupt the normal activity of the default mode network and cause other parts of the brain to become more connected. So you can think of it like psychedelics actually quiet that tape inside your head. Because many scientists believe that an overactive default mode network is linked to psychiatric illness, the hope is that this knowledge can help researchers develop new treatments for mental health conditions. These treatments could very well include psychedelics. By the way, some of the practices we will be teaching on the podcast can help disrupt the default mode network, and by doing so, can provide you with a more present moment experience. The study was performed at Melbourne University, and you can find a link to the study in our show notes. Hi, I'm Sana Tor, a neuroscience student just finishing up my second year at Fordham University. I'm here to share some transcendent experiences that friends of mine have had, either with mind-expanded substances, dreams, or other types of direct experiences. 
Today, I'll present an experience that my friend Maggie has shared with me. I dabbed with 250 milligram with a 250 milligram tab of LSD at the ripe age of 16. I started with taking only half of the small square, then proceeded to take the rest in hopes that I would feel something. What I didn't know is that for the next eight hours, I would be experiencing a full-fledged psychedelic trip. Within the first hour, I could feel my perception of time and space slowly morph. It sounds cliche, but in the first few hours of my trip, LSD caused me to see patterns in the sky and all over my body. These geometrical shapes were flowing down my arm. Organic swirls and diamonds formed everywhere. They appeared ancient to me, resembling some sort of genetic coding. Then, soon after, the trip took a hard turn. Grace, by Little Baby, and 42 Doug started playing, and as soon as I heard the faint whistle in the background come in, something within me clicked. Every emotion was firing rapidly in my brain. Usually, humans cry due to immense thoughts or an outside force that causes the emotion, but in this instance, tears just poured out of me without any explanation. I remember I did feel immense gratitude, confusion, sadness, and love at the same time, all within this three-minute-long song. It was refreshing to just release emotion. As I bawled my eyes out for no valid reason, I began to feel extremely present. I kept saying, I am in the now. I am the future. It's overwhelming. What do I do with myself? I am here right now, 2020. I'm at the peak of history. I'm at the peak of life. I literally shed a layer of my brain that day. Taking in all that had happened was a lot to unpack. The fact that I peaked a little baby still makes me laugh to this day. It's not really how I planned to trip, but that's what psychedelics are all about. You never know what the ride will be like. I finished my day listening to Purity by Frank Ocean and ASAP Rocky. It calmed me immensely, and as I closed my eyes to go to sleep, my mind's eye was still racing with meaningless visuals, looping on and on. I woke up the next morning, Easter Sunday. After that day, my life would not be the same. Exploring Reality Maybe is pleased to present a new interview with our esteemed guest, Maxie Cohen. Right after the interview, Jody will share a meditative practice that you can use to play with perception, identity, and the ego. You can use this practice to melt reality at home, school, or work. Maxie Cohen is our guest today. Maxie Cohen is an award-winning artist and filmmaker based in New York City. Her films, photographs, and multimedia installations have been exhibited internationally and are in the permanent collections of numerous museums, including the Museum of Modern Art, New York, the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, the Israeli Museum in Israel, and the National Gallery of Canada, Ontario. Her films have played in movie theaters, in film festivals, and on television around the world. Welcome, Maxie. It's so wonderful to have you here. You are our first guest on our podcast. And of course, you're a very dear friend of mine and a um, and someone who just I learned from and am inspired by all the time. To start with, 
You know, I, I really want to start with just sort of an early a question from an early time in your life, which will set the stage for everything else. And that is, can you just share with us a little bit about your first memories when you were young, a story of something that might have inspired you on your spiritual and artistic quest? There are two memories that come to mind. One is that I kind of got rescued by a good friend of my mother's who was a painter. She used to have her cleaning lady come on the farm. And instead of getting her to clean the house, she'd get her to model for her. And I would go to the farm to paint once a week with her. And then I had a grandfather who was the rabbi, the gabbai. He was everything in a synagogue, a little synagogue. And I felt very close to him. And I, and he was the only real spiritual person in my family. Did he influence you as a, as a filmmaker? That sounds like he influenced you spiritually. He influenced me more spiritually. I, I don't know what it was. I think it was really rebelling against a very logical mother and mm. watching a lot of TV evangelists on television, which totally, totally enamored me that people would have so much faith that they would get up from wheelchairs. My mother was like, if you can't touch it, it doesn't exist. You know, if you can't, if it, you know, so it made me into a seeker. Mm. Like, what was it to have that much faith? Mm. Because I came from a family where there was no such concept as faith. There was no like this idea, oh, the universe supports you and, you know, just let go and go with the flow. That was not my family. My family was, it, you work hard. If you don't make it happen, nobody has your back. You have to work really, really hard. And if you can't touch it, it doesn't exist. I can't help but thinking that that's the engine that motivates many of us, a Jewish mother. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? That's when you, when you said that, that's, that's what I thought of. Tell us about one of your early projects, the public access. It was the beginning of public access. And so I did a weekly TV show. I had a workshop where I let people, anybody in town who wanted to learn to make television, made television. We'd go on the air once a week. The mayor had a problem. He'd call me up. I'd say, I'll meet you at the Acme. And it became, it, it changed the town culturally, economically, socially forever. So when I, I moved to L.A. in the 90s, um, because I had some feature film projects, but when the riots happened, when Rodney King, when the whole riot, the riot, the Rodney King riot happened, I did not understand really what was going on at this apex of Koreatown and the Latino community and South Central. And nobody could really explain it. And unlike being in New York, where I marveled as a, when I came to New York, coming from a small town, I would get on a subway and count how many different kinds of people were on the subway, how many colors I could see in one subway ride. In L.A., it's not like that. Each community is very segregated. So I thought, what if I put cameras in the hands of African-Americans, Latinos, and Koreans who are living in the areas affected by the riots and have them tell the story from the inside out and see what a difference that could make 
in terms of our really understanding racism and, and intolerance. All right. Well, let's let's sort of move now to your next project, a film that I uh, that I saw parts of, which was Joe and Maxie. Actually, that was the first film I made. I was that was the first. Okay. Yeah. I okay. Was, I was twenty three, and my mother had just passed away from cancer, and I realized, oh my god, for the first time in my life. I'm alone in a room with my father because my mother was always sort of a buffer and my father didn't really know how to be a father. And so I was always enamored by him. I got, you know, my mother was this very kind of um, afraid person. My father did whatever he wanted. And I thought, oh, I'd rather be that. <laughs> I wanted to be him. So. Uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to make a film about him. And actually, I wanted to go to art school. And my mother wouldn't let me go to art school. I would have these fights. I would say, how do you know Picasso didn't come out of, Picasso didn't come out of the womb with a paintbrush in his hand? How, how, how do you know I can't make a living? So um, I thought I would go to film school and I would paint and animate. A very stupid choice because there is no artistic um, medium more expensive than film. So anyway, I thought, okay, I'm going to make a film about my father because I I had really wanted to do that, and that's what happened. And now that film is in the permanent collection at MoMA, and it's because it was really it, an early, maybe the first film type, uh, uh, film of its type that describes a story in that way right so so right so let's so let's sort of segue into your interest in psychedelics um so we'll get into some of your your work uh in this area but can you share an experience uh that inspired you what what brought you what brought this sort of interest in psychedelics uh into your work well first of all i did not have an interest in psychedelics i had an interest in seeking the divine. And um, a friend of mine who was a seeker and a finder <laughs> said to me in 1989, oh, come to this, come to this event, wear white, just wear long sleeves and a skirt. That was about all I knew. I did not know. Uh, very much about what I was about to get into, and this was a this it was an ayahuasca it retreat. Was, it was it was not a retreat. It was an evening. It was a Santo Daimi ceremony, which um, reminded me. You know, when we got there, the it was a long table with a white tablecloth, and the men sat on one side and the women on the other. And I understood that we were going to drink four cups over the course of the evening. And um, that we were going to sing these songs or these hymns, which was really their oral history. And I thought, oh, that sounds like Passover. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you had no preparation whatsoever. Not really. Wow. Not really. I don't remember having any preparation. And where where was this experience of this evening you had? Was that in the United States or was that in Brazil? It was in the United it States. It was in the United States. Very underground. Very underground. Very, very underground. And it was before the Santo Daime Church became 
legal here. Legal here. Yeah, many, many years before that. Mm-hmm. So, so my experience and my introduction was mainly through this kind of doctrine that was a mix of um, rainforest deities and Afro-Brazilian, excuse me, Afro-Brazilian deities and, and Jesus, Mary, and Joseph because it came out of a Catholic country. But since everything was in Portuguese, I didn't understand anything anyway. And so it didn't really seem to matter um, what its origin was, at least not in the beginning. Uh, It was very interesting that once I had sort of this big born-again kind of experience, um, and and I say that what I mean by that is having a visceral, palpable connection to the divine. So it wasn't again; it was for the first time. <laughs> um, I decided to look at the English translation of what they were singing, and it was interesting because the whatever spirit they were bringing down but whatever that english translation was was in direct connection to what had just happened in me um anyway the very the very first time that i drank i thought oh i have to really understand this mystery which is what led me to wanting to make films about it but it took another couple decades until I met really shamans and healers that were using ayahuasca that were working in the Peruvian way and in the Colombian way and in different, many different ways, which the anthropologist in me wanted to understand. Because it also took many, many years for people from South America to come here. And it also took me a while to get there. <laughs> oh, so, And so in that experience where you actually had a visceral experience and in the first drinking of ayahuasca, can you, I mean, it's, it's certainly personal, I know, but is there anything you can share about whether you had a visual experience or a um, emotional experience what was the journey itself like with that plant medicine well first of all i should say i think it's different for everybody uh, i um the very first time the very first time that i drank i i felt kind of impregnated by the divine right i thought oh this is like the immaculate conception or something and i have this sense of the divine feminine and I also was told that to really know love, that I should have a baby. And I had just met the man I was about to marry. Not just met him, but a couple months. And um, it was deeply upsetting because I thought I would never get married and never have a child. What was interesting is that an anthropologist did a, uh, her master's in asking people within the Santo Daimi about their first experiences 
And a huge number of them, most of them, I, I, I don't remember exactly the percentage, had an experience of the divine feminine, which I think is quite interesting. Now, I don't know if that's true for people who work in the Peruvian way, for example, or the Ecuadorian way. Though I think often ayahuasca is considered a grandmother plant. Um, but I thought, I thought that was really, you know, really very interesting. I, I, I mean, I was extremely upset because it just changed my worldview. And I remember there was a psychologist there from Brazil and I was crying. I was upset. And he said, well, maybe it's not a baby. Maybe it's a project. Maybe, you know, and he said, you know, they don't really question these things in Brazil. They, you just have to allow it like you would allow a dream and see what unfolds. So this ultimately leads you to your first project on ayahuasca, The Holy Give Me. Yes. And, and so what, what ended up happening was in 1989, there were, no, 1998. In 1998, there were arrests of people who were leading these ceremonies, which were legal in Brazil, but there were arrests in the United States and in Europe. And while we were very underground in the United States, and I felt silence was our best protection, I thought I better make a film in case it was needed. So I, at the same time, I, because I was a, probably the only person in the media in, at that point, you know, there weren't that many people doing this. So I guess in some way I was a kind of protectress of the whole thing. So I felt like at that point, government really needed to know the value of this. It's, it's, it's listed and it still is listed as a schedule one drug in the same category as heroin and cocaine. But the truth is, is that it has cured people from heroin and cocaine. You were the executive producer from right. Shock to Aura. Right. Oh. Can you talk about how you got involved in that project and what the film is about? Because that's the next ayahuasca story. Well, I had seen at a MAPS conference, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Uh, there was a rough cut of this film made by an amazing director, cameraman, editor, Luke Cote, and his partner, Janine Siegert. Um, I saw this cut of, of uh, From Shock to Awe, and, uh, at, which is about veterans who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they had tried to commit suicide. The wife of, of one of them even left her four-year-old kid to go into combat and tried to commit suicide twice. And you see how screwed up their families are because they're so numb and anxious and terrified. And you see what the VA has to offer and how it isn't working. And so they finally decide to do ayahuasca. So you see them do ayahuasca and you follow them to a year and a half later, a year and a quarter later. And I felt, look, I, what was my original concept, which was to make a film that would show government 
the value of ayahuasca so that it could change policy. And I thought, what is more patriotic than um, healing our veterans? And it's one place that there were right and the left, Republicans and Democrats, everybody could come together. And so I felt I'm going to help them finish this film and get it out there. And that's why I joined 13. They made a great film. I just helped them finish it and get it out. You can find it if you go to fromshockedtoawe.com. And it's, you know, usually films have a life of a year and a half. This film is still being shown. It's still actively being rented. Um, and it people have rented it from 65 countries around the world. So that gives you an idea, you know, in 19 in the 1990s, hardly. I mean, even in the in the early 2000s, when I was making from uh, when I was making the Holy Give Me, and people said would say, "Well, what are you making a film about?" And I would say, "Well, I'm making a film about this brew made from the leaf of one plant and a vine of another." And I knew that if they knew ayahuasca, they would say, "Oh, ayahuasca." Nobody said that for years and years and years. Nobody knew what it was. It wasn't in a spell check. I think it was 2018. I don't remember what year. So if you think how quickly this has become a global, has become globally known, it's quite extraordinary. And so Max, now your most recent film is the Ayahuasca Diaries. And I know you've been working on this film. Can you can tell us why you were compelled to make this film and what you're hoping to accomplish with uh, its release? I felt that that it was it was necessary to make a film for people who were curious now that there were so many more people who were curious and for people who were well seasoned now that there's so many more people who are well seasoned to understand where this came from and that is it came from tribes throughout the amazon ecuador peru colombia brazil Venezuela. And it was really, it's really important that we understand the gift that came from the Amazon and from the tribes of the Amazon. And so I wanted to show how ayahuasca is mind-bogglingly, what it does that's mind-bogglingly humanly possible, and how it can also change culture, and how it has, in fact, been helping to save the Amazon because many people who have had an experience with ayahuasca have this experience of how precious our environment is, how precious the Amazon is, how precious the tribes are of the Amazon. It's the tribes in the Amazon that are protecting it for everybody around the globe. So for us to pay homage to where this gift came from, and think about what does it mean to give back and protect them who are protecting the lungs of the earth for everybody, no matter what you drink, <laughs> I thought was really important. So we don't lose sight of how the tribes are using ayahuasca. And in fact, you know, you share very <clears throat> her, uh, the, the people you interview in the film 
share very personal and, and moving experiences about using ayahuasca. But you also explore the challenges of, of the, the activists in the rainforest and the, the cutting down of the rainforest and its effects on protecting the sacred plant, but also the diversity of the rainforest itself. It actually has a, a, a social statement. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, to protect the Amazon, we have to protect the protectors of the Amazon. And the protectors of the Amazon are the tribes of the Amazon. And there are a couple hundred tribes that are drinking ayahuasca. And they talk about how this is saving them. This sacred drink is giving them a vision of the future, a vision of how to deal with the this modern crazy world. And I mean, there, there, there is um, a spiritual leader from Colombia who says that while they're in ceremony, they hear helicopters overhead. I mean, I can't think of anything more. You know, he says, you call it PTSD. We say it's, we're being hit by bad spirits. And so I just think it's really important for us to understand the life of the, of these tribes that are drinking ayahuasca who are the guardians of the forest what their lives are like because a number of them have been exterminated and the even ironically the evangelical church both in Peru and in Brazil have been killing ayahuascaros this is even shocking now these days. And, and 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 the tribes will talk about how terrified they are for their lives because they are standing in the way of everything that this greedy world wants, mining and oil and you know minerals. Maxie, in the film you talk about your accident. Um can you describe can you describe that a little bit? And um, this concept as a neuroscientist that I'm fascinated with about the effect it had on your brain and this, this restructuring, as you say, of, of your brain. So about a few decades ago, I got hit by a car while I was on my bicycle. And I had a brain concussion and a dislocated shoulder. And as a consequence of this brain concussion, my head never felt like one head. But I just felt like it was made of a number of components that each had a different energy. Some of it felt blocked. And um, for years drinking ayahuasca, I would have these incremental changes, but nothing real, nothing big. And then I went to see a woman in Kurchiba who is an extraordinary, I guess, shaman. And she brought down horses. She came from the tradition originally of Condomble and then Umbanda, which it, which comes from the African Aruba religion. So these are uh, working with the deities of nature, sparks of nature. And so anyway, 
she brought down these forces to heal my head. And um, she gave me a big glass of ayahuasca. And uh, I thought about an hour, an hour to into it, I thought, well, nothing's happening. I don't feel anything and I don't see anything and I don't hear anything. And so I said something to her and she really almost slapped me. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut here. And the next day, I actually had one hit. Like, it felt totally different. And it has been like that since then. She was annoyed with you for questioning her methods. And she just had just... Or interrupting her when she was working on my head. Who knows what she was doing? I had no understanding at the time of what she was doing and how profound it was. and. Uh, and how extraordinary it was. And it really also, you know, one of the things that really I'm concerned about, a lot of people drink ayahuasca and then they start leading these ceremonies and, and they call themselves shamans. This is a lifetime of study. I mean, I know so little and what I, I've been doing this for over 30 years. It is such a mysterious, extraordinary plant, as it's called plant teacher, healer, that um, there are some people who have that ability to really work with this that can be deeply, deeply healing and life-changing. And and so they're bringing those forces to working with the plants. I mean, the plants are great by themselves, but if you really have the opportunity to work with somebody who who has the capacity to see, she had the capacity to see, and she had the capacity to bring down forces from this mysterious realm that could do this work, which is highly mysterious and against everything science can say. Um, that's amazing. So, so Max, this podcast is really an exploration of how, how we create reality, these very unusual things that we can take that shift reality. And one of the questions we want to ask our guests is their own experience related to the dissolution of the ego the, the loss of control out of the ego and sort of an experience. And so I was wondering if you have any comments about your own experience uh, with the ego, with your ego and uh, the quality of dissolution of your identity, your, yourself. Well, I would say that one of the things that I was interested in studying was to discern between the voice of your own ego and the voice of the divine, right? Um, Joan of Arc heard, save France. Was she delusional or was it divine guidance? Uh, President Bush, when he was asked, did you ask your father for advice when you went into Iraq? Was that divine guidance? Oh, he, he said, no, I didn't ask my father. I asked my divine father. 
And that sent him into Iraq. Well, was that divine guidance? So, so I grew up that my mother's logic erased whatever I thought of that was oppositional to her. So that made my early, you know, my teens, my early 20s, it was very hard for me to make decisions. I, I didn't even hear what I would say. You know, people say, well, pay attention to what you're saying. I, I would say things and not even pay attention because my mother's logic was so pervasive. So I had to first learn what my voice was. And then how do you discern between the voice of the divine and your own ego, especially when you do plant medicines? Because you can get lots of information, but how do you know what to trust? So um, that's a very important study. I think it's that study for me was the most important study of my life. Is it the concept that by dissolving your own ego, you're now leaving room to hear the voice of the divine? Is that the concept? Well, that's really interesting that you say that because, you know, when you, so I did a study and I I videotaped because I did a big art project about um, God and ego and, and this. And so I, interviewed spiritual leaders on how do you discern between the voice of the divine and the voice of your own ego. And mostly what what you will hear is that the voice of the divine comes like in a word or feeling. It's not long and complicated. It just is like what some people call intuition or, you know, got response or so um and i've learned that that's usually true that divine guidance is like that i have very little conversation going on in my head i i have uh, yeah i i this was something that i worked on like i said i have to conquer my mind I don't want to have mental illness. And what I consider mental illness is like just driving yourself crazy with your mind. I've known you and I've seen you now super skilled and clear and focused and not, there's not a wishy-washy bone in your body. And so that, that transformation, that individuation uh, from the the mother voice, you're claiming your own uh, beliefs um, all of that, uh, I, I've seen it to be t- truly transformative. And, you know, I think that even the work with ayahuasca that dissolves even a societal ego ego that we hold, you know, a uh, collective ego that we hold, uh, the ayahuasca experience can dissolve those things as well. And a, a rebirth of a truer, more authentic self um, emerges. Yeah, well, what it does is it just burns off neuroses without effort. It makes you see yourself. It burns off neuroses without effort. So when you really see yourself and you can see how you can drive yourself crazy with your mind, you, I mean, I just decided I'm not going to let myself go crazy. And so I became very vigilant in how I dealt with my mind. 
like I'm not my mind. So I'm not going to let my mind rule the show. And so my mind is very quiet. And it has been for a number of years. And that is a result of ayahuasca. And also, I would say from doing a little bit of work with 5-MAO DMT. And the fact that um, my mind is so quiet, it's very easy or much easier to discern everything and to have a great deal of equanimity about everything. And that is a product of, of working with these plant teachers. I want to get to five MAO DMT in a moment, but before <laughs> I do that, I just want to hover for a moment on divine guidance. Um, as I see it, there are two possibilities with these, these psychedelic plants. Number one is it's your mind on drugs and it's a chemical biological reaction. You know, that's the scientist in me. The other possibility is there's some connection to a higher power. It's somehow helping the brain transmit, receive, you know, somehow be in connection with some sort of higher power. And when you use the word divine interactions, I wonder what your view is um, as to what these plants, you know, what these plants are doing at a fundamental level. There is some level at which I think science isn't satisfied or can't be satisfied. I mean, I'm surprised when the tribes talk about their tribal leaders as scientists. I'm thinking, what are they talking about, really? You know, the plants are talking to them, but I'm not sure. I'm sure they're not talking to them in chemical configurations. So I don't even know what they mean when they call their elder scientists. I am very curious. And in my film, I certainly bring up what the science is. You know, what do we know that comes out of a lab, out of clinical testing? All that I'm fascinated by because it just reinforces people's experience. And it's also good to tell your family when they think you're going nuts and you're losing your mind that, hey, the science shows that it increases neuroplasticity. And it's actually better for my mind. So I think the science is really important. But if I could tell you, or even if the woman could tell you how my head got fixed, I'm not sure that that can be answered. And so there is a lot that we don't know, and that is very mysterious. And one of the things that I think is really important in the midst of this psychedelic renaissance that we are experiencing, in which we are very fortunate to have so much science being explored. We're having, you know, you have from NYU to John Hopkins to Caltech, you know, it's happening all over and, and in Europe as well. I think it's really important to remember the sacredness and the mystery of these plants. And that's the other reason I made this film, that there is some reverence for the sacred and the unknown. 
that I think is important. It's so true. It's so true. So talk to us for a moment about your experience with 5-methoxy-DMT, because that's that's a very interesting one. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's not like anything else. It's really not like anything else. And it's really for the brave. <laughs> Terrifying? No, I, 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 I approached it quite terrifyingly. There, it is the only thing that I have done where there is no awareness of awareness. It is total disillusion. There is no, you know, you take it and you're gone. You're in the white light. I think you, I, I, I am going to assume that this is what happens when you die. Um, the first time I did it, uh, and I was scared to do it, but the first time I did it, I just, I left. I, I don't know. It was, I was gone. And, and, in, and that I, mo- I, in that moment, were you terrified? Do you remember being terrified? No. Well, what's but, the difference but, between but, it and a deep sleep? Like when you're in deep sleep, you're also gone. No, I was, I think I was just in the most profound, beautiful, dissolving white light. That's what I entered. And then as I came back, I heard, we've reset you. We've we've reset you, which is why I wanted to do it. And then as time progressed, I realized I was not the same person and there was nothing else that I had done that could have intervened. And um, it was definitely quite extraordinary. I mean, I talk to people who do it often. I don't know how or why. And I've known people who've gone through truly terrifying experiences that are extraordinary. I mean, I could tell you stories that are extraordinary. But I think I don't have demons to do battle with. I think that must be it. I think I'm lucky that I don't have demons. Did it, did it do anything for you in terms of fear of death? Um, you know, this is a sort of theme, I think. Um, and it sounds like a death-like experience. Um, but did your experience with this chemical uh, help you, have, provide you with any insights in relationship to, to death and dying? Yeah, it certainly um, helped me to get rid of fear. Uh, I actually had some residual activation the last time I did it I, because I felt like a, I, I, you know, I had been working a lot and I felt like a butterfly wing about to dissolve into the universe. And I kind of had reactivations of it and I felt like I could just go and I'd be fine. Wow, that's powerful. As you, as you think about, just in, in wrapping up our conversation here and your work going forward, what is it about your own journey in healing, but also the kind of work that you've produced in the world? What is it about the healing of suffering 
that um, moves you and moves your art? Well, everything that I've done has come from a deep need, probably an unconscious need, to heal something in myself. But I feel very privileged by the fact that I am doing it, you know, that I feel, well, it's important that I do it not just for myself, but for other people as well. And so while everything that I've done has had some level of intimacy, either giving voice to myself or to other people in an intimate way, it's been very important to me that it has the ability to be catalytic in in changing or helping other people. I mean, I, I am proud of the fact that From Shock to Awe has probably changed or saved more lives than any film I know of. And I think that the films that I'm, yeah, I think the, the work that I'm doing has that. Uh, I see that the work that I'm doing based on the feedback that I get, even from Joe and Maxie, when, when women came up to me and told me how valuable it was to be able to see this intimate relationship between a daughter and father that they didn't know anybody else had to the most recent film that I'm making now, just in showing pieces of the film. People have felt that it's either helped them integrate their experiences with plant medicines, or it has inspired them to be brave enough to do something that might help their own suffering. So, Max, you know, I, I want to invite the audience to go on your website, uh, maxicoenstudio.com. Right now, I do know that besides the Ayahuasca Diaries, you're working on producing a actually immersive experience called a movement in water. And what's exquisite about this work, and I, I hope people will go on your website and look at some of the photos, is that in your journey as a filmmaker, you've filmed water in sacred places from around the globe for 30 plus years and filmed the indigenous women singing their ancestral songs about water. Um, I know you have a wonderful program in partnership with the State Department and, and you're working and talking to the UAE. And so all of this is in this reverence of nature, reverence to nature and reverence to plant consciousness. And so in closing, is there any, anything else you want to share as we, as we wrap up? I can't think of anything. You know, I, I can't think of anything. I just... You know, my prayer is that everybody has the ability under whatever circumstances they are to find their own true voice and heart to make themselves feel whole, expressed, and loved. I, I think that compassion 
really comes through in, in all of your work. So I really, I, uh, I can really sense that. Thank you. Thank you very much. For our first meditation with Exploring Reality Maybe, I, I want to bring you into your internal, precious ground of being, what I describe as home base. So if you don't mind, just turn off your phone and sit really comfortably in your chair or wherever you are so that your feet are relaxed and on the ground and your shoulders are not, um, your neck's not curved or you're not like in tension while you're sitting. Just be very relaxed and come right in into your, close your eyes and come right inside into your very familiar, very precious terrain, what I call your internal landscape. And here you are inside. This is home base. This is very familiar and comfortable. And I want to inspire you just to feel into this space. You as awareness, as your own consciousness that you're very familiar with. Feel here. You're going to feel perceptions arising, thoughts you're thinking, will, will thoughts will come by. You'll have feelings, not only what you're sitting on, but other feelings might arise and emotions. And you'll have perceptions, light, as sound comes in. And I want to inspire you just to be here and observe not in the past, not in the future, just in this preciousness of yourself, which is really, if you're looking for a safe, really tender place to come to, like a home base, this is where I want to inspire you to come. So just sit here. You don't have to do anything. Just be in presence and observe. As feelings, thoughts, perceptions arise, just let them go by like clouds and come back. No past, no future, just here in your preciousness in this moment. Therefore, my friends, during your day, if you get stressed, if you feel anxiety, I want to inspire you to come back and sit in your home base, your internal, beautiful home where, where you are just thriving and perfect the way you are. And visit here. Take a moment. Take a minute at your desk or during traffic or whatever and come back here and just be present.
when you feel ready, just begin to take a deeper breath and wiggle your fingers and toes. And when you're ready, you can come out of this experience. But I call this simple meditation coming back to home base. And I invite you to come back at any time you feel the need. The music you have been listening to is actually my consciousness in motion. To create this hypnotic music, Marsha Britskaya of Nexvox and her team connected musical notes to the frequency of my brainwaves from gamma to delta. The team at Nexvox will be exploring how listening to your own brainwaves can provide health benefits from reducing your blood pressure to calming anxiety. Visit our show notes to learn more about Nextbox. Exploring Reality Maybe is written, produced, fact-checked, and edited by Jody R. Weiss and David Schwartz. Research support is provided by Semicolon Connects. Music produced by Nextbox. Visit our website at exploringrealitymaybe.org to find show notes, transcripts, bios, and to learn more. If you like the show, please visit our website to donate.